the lockdowns of 2020 may have given way to the COVID vaccine drives of 2021. But a year on, the spread of Omicron has pushed millions of people back into some form of social restrictions. From the fall of Afghanistan to the end of Israel's longest-serving prime minister, from the billionaire space race to the renewed global action to tackle climate change. 2021 has been a year of change, a year of firsts and of lasts, and it has been, for many, a year of ups and downs. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young. And in the final two episodes of 2021, we wanted to reflect on the year that was, on the biggest events that we at The National believe will come to shape how we remember this year and may well define some of 2022's biggest moments. We'll hear from some of the reporters who were there, covering the stories as they unfolded and hearing why they think these will be the defining moments of 2021. We entered the year on a hopeful note. COVID vaccines were rushing off production lines and into arms around the world, with armies of health workers and volunteers keeping queues moving. As of January 1st, 2021, just 12 million doses of a COVID-19 vaccine had been administered globally. By the end of December, that had risen to nearly 8.5 billion doses administered. The world has witnessed the single fastest vaccine development operation and global rollout in the history of mankind. Suddenly, restrictions were eased, families and friends gathered again, offices, shops and restaurants closed for much of 2020, reopened. Many hoped this would mark the end of the worst of the pandemic and that we would be able to put this behind us. But the hope of a return to normal proved premature. India witnessed a devastating wave that buckled health services in and around Mumbai and major cities and left, at a minimum, 200,000 dead. The situation is critical right now. This pandemic is the worst we have ever seen till now. If you've listened to some of the many Beyond the Headlines episodes this year on the coronavirus, you'll have heard from the national science reporter Daniel Bardsley, who has been covering the pandemic extensively since it first emerged. He joins us again today to talk about the vaccine rollouts, nationalism, variants and the anti-vax movement. There have been several issues that have made controlling the coronavirus and dealing with the pandemic more difficult this year. I think certainly the difficulties with the vaccine rollout have been one issue. The Delta variant emerged in India in late 2020. And so as a result of that, India um, imposed an export ban on coronavirus vaccines um, fairly early on in 2021. And that had a big effect because India is the biggest vaccine manufacturer. And so that um, that affected rollouts um, in some of the, particularly in some of the poorer countries that were due to receive supplies from the COVAX system. Um, although it's it's quite understandable why India should want to vaccinate its own population, given that it was in the middle of a terrible outbreak um, in the in the first half of 2021. So that's been an issue: the the inconsistency of the rollouts, and then there've been several factors, I suppose, in in some other parts of the world, uh, an anti-vax movement in 
particularly in parts of Europe and North America, very inconsistent rates of vaccination in the United States, for example. So that's been another measure that's made it more difficult for them to control the virus. And of course, the other key issue has been the emergence of variants, which I suppose has has then had an effect, as as mentioned, on, on vaccination rates and vaccine rollouts. So it's the Delta variant that emerged in October 2020, and that began spreading in different parts of the world through 2021. So countries that had maybe got the situation under control then saw heavy outbreaks because of the arrival of the Delta variant, which spread much more rapidly. Since the start of the pandemic, scientists warned that as we fight back, and vaccines halt the spread of the original strain of COVID-19, the virus would mutate. Our best weapon was mass widespread vaccination as fast as we can to prevent the virus from festering, mutating and spreading again. But if 2020 was the year of lockdowns, 2021 has proved to be the year of mutations. First came Delta, then came Omicron. So the initial coronavirus vaccines that were developed early on, they were focused on the, I suppose, the the forms of the coronavirus that emerged initially. And so each time the coronavirus mutates, then there's a risk that the immunity generated by vaccines won't be quite as effective at countering the virus. But it's not just the risk from with new variants, it's not just the risk of vaccine evasion, it's also the risk that they might be maybe be able to enter human cells more easily or be able to replicate more quickly once they're inside human cells. I think with Omicron, they're still collecting data, so it's, it's not really clear yet at the moment what the key risks associated with it is, but it certainly seems more transmissible. And whilst there are possibly some indications that it doesn't produce quite so severe symptoms so often. The the simple fact that it transmits more easily means that you'll get vastly numbers of or vastly increased numbers of of cases of the coronavirus. And even if a slightly smaller proportion of those result in serious illness, it does still risk overwhelming health services because there are simply so many more cases because of the new variant. Daniel also warns that this is far from the end of the mutation that these viruses are always mutating. That, therefore, can mean the emergence of a more spreadable or even a more severe strain. Daniel says that this reality clashes with many people's expectation for how this year was meant to go. One pattern that seems to have emerged is that people seem to think that things would be over and would be sorted out much more quickly than has been the case. So although it's difficult to look back and remember exactly what was said when. Certainly, I think people thought the, the the whole world would be vaccinated in a relatively short period of time once a vaccine was developed. And it's obvious now that, that it's, it's going to be quite a long process to get the whole world vaccinated and to get boosters rolled out. I don't think it was ever really realistic that we should expect the world to get back to normal in 2021, which would have been little over a year since the novel coronavirus actually emerged in China. Daniel points out that there is still massive differences in how countries have handled the pandemic. Indeed, much of the West has pursued a mitigation strategy, implementing rules to try and slow the spread of the pandemic, while investing heavily in vaccine programmes. One thing that's been interesting about the pandemic is the way that, that different countries have responded differently to it. And 
say, here in the UK and probably many other European countries, for periods of time, things have almost returned to normal and then controls have had to be reintroduced. But I think once we reach a situation where people can return to normal and and things will stay normal, I suppose that probably something over the next two or three years, I would expect, once the virus truly becomes endemic and almost everyone has been infected with it at least once. I think that's what experts say, that ultimately it will be like it will eventually become a bit like the flu in that something that people will always expect to have been infected with. But by generating immunity through vaccination, that's one way of ensuring that even if people do become infected, they don't become as seriously ill. Some countries, however, have still been pursuing a zero COVID strategy. The thing that uh, I suppose struck me was the way in in New Zealand, actually, that they were able to continue with an elimination policy towards the, the, the coronavirus Whereas most other countries and an awful lot of countries had just given up really trying to get rid of the virus. They still had hopes that they would be able to keep New Zealand coronavirus free. And even quite late into 2021, some of the scientists were saying that it wasn't unrealistic for the whole world to even consider eliminating the virus. I think since the Delta variant emerged and then began infecting New Zealand, um, they've realised that they can't continue with that policy and they've now moved to a a mitigation strategy and are looking to open up eventually. But I think that was perhaps the thing that surprised me most, you know, being in the UK here where we've perhaps moved in the opposite direction. I think that was the one thing that surprised me, the way that New Zealand was able to continue with that elimination policy until relatively recently. And then there are the countries that have little option. Across the Middle East, there are those that simply have had to weather outbreaks of COVID with minimal lockdowns and school closures and halts on normal life. Iraq and Lebanon, for example, simply don't have the money to spend on the massive support packages and they can't handle the economic fallout of a lockdown. I am standing with the people here, the poor and hungry people, people who can't find something to eat. Tomatoes are at 5,000 Lebanese pounds a kilo. If you want to eat them with some lentils. They closed our shops, our houses, and everything because of coronavirus. Stay at home, stay at home. Isn't this how you ask people to stay at home? Provide for those you are asking to stay at home. Give money to the people for them to eat and drink. While things like demographics, an overwhelmingly young population, have kept death rates relatively low, the toll has still been felt. Iran was the worst hit country in the region, and yet the government held off lockdowns in Tehran and other major cities as long as possible. When they came, they were short and sharp, with life returning to normal very quickly. But the fallout of that was mass digging of graves and struggling hospitals. Many countries have been very frank about these risks. In Tunisia, officials were candid in calling on the public to abide by social distancing and mask wearing where possible, as the country simply couldn't afford another lockdown. So what is in store for 2022 when it comes to COVID-19? Will this be the year that life starts to return to normal? Well, in the last days of 2021, there was a slew of encouraging news about the Omicron variant. A number of studies on early data suggest that the variant is less severe than the previous Delta strain, even while it's much, much more infectious. 
A South African study in December found that Omicron resulted in 80% fewer hospitalizations than Delta. A UK study from the Imperial College London on the same day found that those with Omicron were 15 to 20% less likely to visit hospital and 40 to 45% less likely to require an overnight stay than those who had been infected with the Delta variant. But that study found that Omicron was 10 times more infectious than the Delta strain. As virologists had intimated, it appears that the virus has mutated to be more infectious, even as it has become less harmful. However, at the same time these scientists are giving us cautious optimism, they are coming with a warning. Even if Omicron appears to be less severe, they say, the fact that it is so spreadable and appears to have no problem in infecting those who have previously had COVID means that many could get very sick and many could die without swift action. This is just because of the scale of the new wave that could be much greater and much faster than past outbreaks. Along with mutating strains, the other major COVID story of the year is the rise of the anti-vax and the anti-pandemic sentiment. As Omicron began to spread and countries brought back limits and restrictions on movement, there was a fresh wave of protest against new measures. But this has really been raging all year, from thousands marching in Berlin, Paris and London, to clashes on the streets of Sydney as governments eased and imposed restrictions to limit the spread of COVID. Polling firm YouGov have been tracking a number of COVID-related issues over the course of the pandemic. Over the past 12 months, YouGov found that public support for government lockdown measures across Europe and North America had been fairly consistently falling from highs around the start of the pandemic last year. In January 2021, 25% of the US public supported quarantining a location if needed. But by December, just 13% of people felt the same. US public support for temporarily closing schools dropped from 34% in January to just 12% in December. As Daniel said, people expected this pandemic to be over already. Seeing new restrictions being brought in isn't proving popular. But as well as fatigue with the measures, there's also the issue of anti-vaxxing. That is, people who are rejecting the science, the safety, or the need to vaccinate themselves and others. Many of those have found like-minded people online, shared theories and stories, and then met in the real world for protests. So these are people that do not believe in vaccines, perhaps even believe vaccines are harmful, um, and therefore do not vaccinate themselves or their children um, to any of the vaccine regimens that we normally all go through. The vaccine hesitancy group is, is a slightly different group. These are people that are really hesitant to, in this context, in getting the COVID vaccine. So these are not necessarily people that don't believe in vaccines or have not gotten their children vaccinated, but are just really concerned and are kind of on the fence of whether they want to get a COVID vaccine. So I think it's really important to differentiate between these two groups because the anti-vaxxer group is a smaller. It ranges anywhere from one, one in 20 to one to 10 people in the population, depending on the country you look at whereas the hesitancy group is, is really a more broader, um, a, a grayer segment of the population and really are concerned for different reasons for not wanting to get a vaccine. In the UK, there are reports of anti-vaxxers block-booking vaccination appointments in order to try and deny others the chance to get booster jabs. In the US, doctors have reported receiving threats and warnings 
from those who believe that medical practitioners are making personal profit from the pandemic. It's a broad spectrum, but it's undoubtedly hampering efforts to end the pandemic. The US was slow in its vaccine rollout at the start, but then ramped up quickly under the Biden administration, and soon more than a million people a day were being jabbed across America. But that fast catch-up hit a wall. On January 1st, 2021, the US had vaccinated just 0.01% of the population. It took 193 days until July 13th, 2021 to vaccinate 50% of the US population. But over the course of the next 171 days to the end of 2021, the US only vaccinated another 12% of the population, bringing their total vaccination rate to 62%. Officials were confident that their outreach and community approach meant that all of those who wanted to get a vaccine should now have had one. Those who had not, they said, were reluctant or simply choosing not to get vaccinated. New York offered week-long travel cards on the subways to those that got vaccinated. Cities started vaccine lotteries with million-dollar payouts for those getting jabbed. They made sure that undocumented and non-legal residents could get vaccinated for free. They provided information in numerous languages and had community outreach across the country. And still, people chose not to take up the vaccine. Even as YouGov polling data shows that public support in the US for a vaccine has risen from 47% in January to over 70% support in December. So what does 2022 have in store with COVID-19? Here's Daniel again with his predictions on what's to come. We will hopefully expect larger rates of vaccination in Africa, particularly through the COVAX program, as, as global supplies of or global shortages of vaccine um, ease. I think it's quite difficult to know what the situation is going to be like next year and whether it's going to, if you like, settle down or whether we'll see huge flare-ups in, in case numbers in some countries. Certainly, there have been some quite worrying predictions about how many case rates and deaths Omicron could cause under worst case scenarios. So I think that's the one thing people will be looking out for to see what happens with Omicron next year. While so much focus is still on COVID-19, the World Health Organization has also made stark warnings about the next pandemic. Coronavirus has shown how simply underprepared most of the world is for a massive public health crisis. Here's Daniel again. I think there's been a lot of discussion that, yes, the world should become better prepared for pandemics. Um, I think the one, I suppose, lesson you think the world really should learn is, is how to avoid pandemics, because this pandemic potentially was avoidable. I suppose the two key suggestions as to how it emerged are either a lab leak or through a live animal market, both of which are potentially avoidable. And in terms of, say, the live animal market, many of the infectious diseases that, that humans suffer from, they've only really become problems since the advent of agriculture and because of our close relationships with animals. And I think it's much more caution in that area, I think, is what's needed to ensure that we don't have another case of a novel coronavirus that exists in an animal um, crossing the species barrier into people because this could easily happen again, because there are many other types of coronavirus that live in animals. And so I think we have to be much more careful about how we treat wildlife and use live animals to ensure that this doesn't happen again. 
While COVID definitely dominated our lives and the news headlines in 2021, it was far from the only story. There was the storming of the US Capitol building and the second impeachment of Donald Trump at the start of the year. The military coup in Myanmar. There was the ever-given super tanker blocking global trade when it got stuck in the Suez Canal. There was the death of Britain's Prince Philip, the Tokyo Olympics, El Salvador starting to accept Bitcoin as legal tender, a coup derailing the democratic transition in Sudan. But 2021 was also the year of space. Just like the first space race in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, dominated by the push to put a man on the moon, this year saw the culmination of a new private space race. It was the battle of the billionaires and their ambitions for the stars. Amazon's Jeff Bezos, Virgin's Richard Branson, both flew to space on their private craft. Then Tesla and SpaceX's Elon Musk appeared to solidify his place as the new king of private spaceflight with billions in deals for NASA supply and astronaut runs as well as commercial satellite launches. So this year we've had a lot of exciting stuff going on in space. That's Arthur Scott Geddes, the National's space correspondent. Collaboration between NASA and SpaceX really hit its stride after years of delays. Uh, they began sending astronauts to the International Space Station from the US uh, late in 2020, and they've carried out several more crewed flights this year. Um, and then 2021 was also a really significant year for space tourism. Uh, the race between Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos to become the first person to reach space on a rocket built by their own company generated a huge amount of interest. And there was also a private space mission carried out with the help of SpaceX called Inspiration4. Uh, that was the first space flight with an all-civilian crew and an accompanying Netflix series uh, documented their training and then the launch. That mission actually helped break the record for the most people in space at one time. Uh, I think in total there were 14 people in space, four from Inspiration4, there were seven people on the International Space Station and three astronauts were living on China's recently launched new space station. But it wasn't just the private sector where we've been seeing exciting developments. There's been a flurry of missions to the Red Planet. We've had some extremely important scientific missions uh, to Mars, including NASA's Perseverance rover, the Ingenuity helicopter, uh, China's rover, and of course the UAE's Mars orbiter uh, called HOPE. And all of these missions arrived at the Red Planet at once, pretty much at the same time, because they all left Earth together. Because it's so far away, uh, there are windows every two years where, because of the position of the two planets, you can get there using much less energy. Uh, the next launch window uh, is next year, uh, and there's a whole host of other missions to the Red Planet, including the ExoMars missions, uh, which include another rover. This year, Mars was visited by the UAE's HOPE probe in orbit. Then there was China's Tianwen-1 rover and NASA's Perseverance rover. All of these missions had a different but somewhat overlapping aim. Of course, to better understand the Red Planet. But as Arthur tells us, there was more. So there were a number of uh, focuses, I guess, from the science missions to Mars this year. Many of them were still ongoing. The, the Perseverance rover is the best shot we've had for, for a long time in answering the question of whether there was ever life on Mars, right? So whether the planet could ever have supported life. And so there are lots of different instruments on board that are used to you know, analyse the, the regolith or, or the rocks on Mars and, and, and to really look for signs of, of ancient life. One of the things that the Perseverance rover took with it to Mars 
was the Ingenuity helicopter. This tiny craft set out to make a historic first, humankind's first controlled, powered flight on another planet. Sure, we've landed probes and rovers on the moon, on Mars, on other planets, but they've basically been controlled crash landings with parachutes and thrusters. This would be about a small helicopter able to take off and fly around. Arthur explains what was involved in such an undertaking and why this is just so difficult. The Ingenuity helicopter is another really interesting project. Um, It kind of, I think, started out and the stuff you would read about it would be very humble in, in what they were trying to achieve. You know, they were trying to basically prove that you could, that it is possible to fly on Mars. The, the, the air there is so thin that it's equivalent to, you know, a, a normal helicopter trying to fly on Earth at 100,000 feet. It, the air is so thin on Mars. And altimeter data confirms that Ingenuity has performed its first flight. So they proved, you know, spectacularly that you can fly on Mars. And since then, you know, it's, it's been flying around. And they've actually now proved that you can also use a flying kind of helicopter type drone uh, to help with exploration. So it's been kind of like forging a path for the, for the Perseverance rover and, and kind of scouting for it, which is way beyond what they were targeting. So the Hope Orbiter's mission as well was to study Mars's atmosphere and to find out why its atmosphere was basically evaporated away and um, and and how how Mars lost its atmosphere has a lot of lessons um you know for our understanding of how our own atmosphere works uh, but also you know knowing more about Mars's atmosphere will help us with future exploration efforts there so these scientific missions are trying to push our understanding of Mars our solar system's best candidate to have or have had life but why It's not just for the lofty pursuits, but there's also talk of sending people there. In November 2015, NASA's administrator Bolden said that the agency was planning to send a manned mission to Mars by 2030, and that the 2021 Perseverance probe would support that human mission. SpaceX Elon Musk also wants to go to the Red Planet. But it's a long way. It's a really long way. 358 million kilometres at its closest orbit. And it's really dangerous. Whipped by megastorms, toxic air, boiling days and freezing nights, no oxygen and no available water. Sending people will be a huge undertaking and bringing them home again will be no less dangerous. The space race in the, in the 1950s and 60s played out over the backdrop of the Cold War. So the US and the Soviet Union were constantly competing to try and prove which of their ideologies and which of their ways of organising the world was right. Obviously, we don't live in that kind of uh, world anymore. But, you know, there is still a race to achieve these kind of like firsts for science, right? So the next big thing that scientists are really excited about in terms of Martian exploration is uh, sample retrieval, is what they call it. It's basically going and getting something from Mars and bringing it back to Earth, which has never happened before. And the US and China both have missions that want to bring back um, Martian samples in the next years and decades. And it's not clear who will be the first to do it. But we've really reached the limit of what we're able to achieve on Mars with robots, I think. Uh, and so that's why the focus is shifting towards you know, bringing the samples back to Earth so that you can analyze them in a laboratory, 
but also, you know, shifting towards human exploration. And there are all sorts of people who are interested in sending human astronauts to the red planet to explore. So this brings us back to our billionaire space entrepreneurs and one in particular, Elon Musk. Elon Musk doesn't just want to visit the red planet. He wants to set up a permanent colony there. He's built a rocket designed as the blueprint for interplanetary travel. Starship will first take NASA to the moon. But how possible is this dream really? So building a permanent human settlement on Mars will be a huge challenge. People like Elon Musk have have expressed a desire to do this, and I think they're going to make a real attempt to do it. As we saw with NASA's Ingenuity helicopter, the Red Planet is even a difficult place to survive as a robot, let alone as as a person. There are a huge number of problems. The atmosphere is extremely thin. Gravity is lower than it is on Earth. It's extremely cold, especially at night. And humans on Mars would also need to shield themselves from radiation. So while the primary focus of most kind of Martian science at the moment is to focus on whether life once existed there, missions like the Perseverance rover are increasingly being used uh, to figure out how to send people there one day. One module on the rover, it's called MOXIE, earlier this year, uh, proved that it was possible to generate oxygen on Mars, um, you know, just out of the thin atmosphere. And this was a, a first for science, and it would be really important that any future missions are able to generate their own oxygen for breathing. But just getting to Mars with a human crew is perhaps the biggest challenge. It took Perseverance around seven months to travel 480 million kilometres to get there. Despite these challenges, NASA is planning to go there in the the coming decades, and Elon Musk wants to get there even sooner. So Elon Musk has repeatedly given very ambitious deadlines and targets for for settling on Mars and and colonising Mars. Uh, He recently discussed um, even sending what he called a futuristic Noah's Ark to help kickstart human colonisation. But all throughout this time, scientists have been very sceptical of, of SpaceX's uh, you know, really ambitious deadlines uh, you know, to establish a permanent settlement there by 2050. So it remains to be seen how far along they'll get. Why is it that Musk is so mad to make a new home for humans on Mars? Literally the most dangerous place humans will ever have been. But the thing about the multiplanetary thing is that that's Elon's whole goal, is to basically protect, safeguard the long-term existence of humanity by establishing life on other planets, right? So if anything does happen to Earth, then we could survive on Mars or, or wherever else. So that's what he wants to do. But in terms of the countries, like they don't have a huge amount to gain other than furthering our, other than kind of prestige and, and uh, the prestige of, you know, getting there first and what you would learn from actually going there on top of, you know, what we've learned from things. Elon Musk's SpaceX is the culmination of years of work. The same as it is for Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos, who also sent manned rockets into space this year. But Arthur explains their journey and their dream of space tourism began a long time ago. So NASA was actually initially against sending private citizens into space. This attitude kind of softened. And in the 1970s, you start to see the kind of first real concepts for space tourism. It was only really with the space shuttle program that serious space tourism began to be even considered. In 1984, there was an American guy called Charles Walker who became the first astronaut who wasn't employed by the US government, basically, or the first non-government astronaut. But then what happened was, is after the Challenger disaster in 1986, this kind of ground to a halt. And then it wasn't really until the 1990s that people began kind of founding the first space tourism companies that were designed to cater mainly for extremely wealthy clients who had made a lot of money from the dot-com boom. 
And then in the 2000s, you get the first true space tourists. There were six people, all of them millionaires or billionaires, who flew to the International Space Station uh, on Russian rockets, but with the help of an American company called Space Adventures. Uh, I think they were believed to have paid about $25 million each for those, for those flights. And then at the same time, while this was happening, some of what we would now consider to be the main players in space tourism started up their own companies. So there was Jeff Bezos, who founded Blue Origin in secret in 2001, and Richard Branson founded Virgin Galactic in 2004. And these were really the first serious attempts to make space tourism accessible to people who weren't ultra wealthy. Space tourism kind of trickled on in the background in the meantime, but it's only really been this year that those companies have started delivering on their promises, you know, to to make space more accessible to, to more people. So does this mean that you and I will be able to afford a holiday to space at some point soon? Well, yes and no. Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic will at some point open up commercial trips to space. The exact price is yet to be announced. The BBC reported 600 people had already put down deposits with Blue Origin for a seat costing up to $250,000. We don't know yet when it will be open to the public or what the final price tag for a flight will be. So yes, in the near future, some of the relatively well-off will be able to take trips to outer space. But for Bezos and Musk and others, this is just the start of something more. So on the one hand, there's like a, there's a significant emerging market, right, that people like Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson are competing for. Uh, the investment bank UBS has estimated that the space tourism sector could be worth about $3 billion by 2030. Uh, but I think that for a lot of the companies with space tourism plans, you know, it gives them a foothold and a way to keep developing the technologies that will help them to get a share of an even bigger pie, uh, which is the commercial space sector as a whole. There are always extremely high numbers being thrown around for what this might be worth. But UBS, for example, reckons it will double by 2030 to be worth about $800 billion. What's interesting is that the commercial space is already worth more than lots of other industries people often think of as being extremely lucrative, uh, like the mobile app industry, for instance. And for someone like Jeff Bezos, space tourism is also a way to keep working towards a much more ambitious goal. You know, he's talked about plans to build a colony in space for humans to live on. And uh, developing the technology and, and the rockets to, to send people to space on tourism flights, he thinks, will help him get there. So there are a whole host of, uh, of technologies you know, that have really started coming into fruition this year and in recent years. Um, things that come to mind would be uh, Constellation internet services like Starlink, which is SpaceX's version. Uh, there's Amazon's Project Kuiper, OneWeb and Telesat. All of these use tiny satellites in, in kind of strings and constellations that are orbiting the Earth. And they, you know, they, they can provide really good internet to pretty much anywhere on the planet. It's, it's even possible to see these you know, strings of tiny satellites um, flying around. There are also this year been, um, there's a company called Gitai from Japan, and they are trying to develop robots uh, that will do something called on-orbit servicing, which is basically repairing satellites and, and decommissioning satellites in orbit. And the idea is that it's, they're also trying to uh, you know, find ways of reducing the need for humans to go out on really dangerous spacewalks by um, you know, developing these robots that are capable of doing it instead. You know, we've also seen lots of other projects, uh, an explosion in the number of uh, very small satellites called CubeSats, 
and, and other types of small satellites being launched to do all sorts of things, including you know, monitoring pollution, photography from, from space and things like that. But all of this really has come about because the cost of getting something into space has really fallen quite dramatically in the last 10 or 20 years. And I think that the great innovation of the private space sector has to be reusable rockets, which, you know, reusable rockets are kind of the core of how SpaceX has been so successful and, and now how Blue Origin is able to send people uh, to space. And even, you know, Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic uses a, re- a reusable system. And this has really, really brought down the cost of, of getting something into space. A lot of this is actually being made possible by the advances put in place by the likes of SpaceX. Space travel has always been hugely expensive, only available to the wealthiest nations. But that is all changing. SpaceX is basically making it very cheap to ship things off Earth. So, for instance, from the beginning of the 1970s to about 2000, the cost of sending a a kilogram of something into space remained pretty much the same. I think it was around $18,500 per kilo. The space shuttle, which was when it was designed, was supposed to be, you know, an incredibly cost-efficient, reusable way of getting something into space. Uh, that could send about 27 and a half tons of payload into space for about one and a half billion dollars. I think it works out to about fifty-four thousand dollars per kilo. Um, but compare that with a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket, which is the same thing that we've seen, uh, you know, delivering international space station astronauts. And the cost per kilo is only $2,720. So bringing this cost down so dramatically has opened up the industry to a huge number of companies with with ideas and, and things that they want to put in space. So the private companies are fast entering what has long been the purview of state space agencies. But this is also being embraced. NASA has been working for years on a replacement to its space shuttle fleet that retired in 2011. Until SpaceX came along, the US was relying on the Russian Soyuz rockets to get to the International Space Station. Now NASA is signing deals with SpaceX to fly supplies and people to the ISS. And it will use the SpaceX rocket to send the next Americans to the moon in a few years. Although the 2024 timeline is likely too ambitious at this point. So what's the difference here? What are private companies doing that they can be bringing cheaper, more efficient rockets, probes and missions? I'm sure that advancements in computing power in the 90s and probably 2000s made it possible uh, to have much more sophisticated automatic control of a rocket. But essentially, they're still making the rockets with the same materials. It's just that I think it was more of an economic factor, you know, that when you're a national government doing space technology, you also have a lot of stuff to consider about safety. So weirdly, like there's loads of stuff on the Perseverance rover that's like really old. It's rolling around on Mars with with the same CPU that you would have had in like an Apple Mac from like the 1990s because it's really well proven. So there's a tendency with these big national space programs to rely on really proven, trusted technology, even if it's more expensive and less sophisticated. And that's really the difference is that SpaceX, because it's a private company and you know it's come close to, to failing several times, they've had to push for this new technology and innovate in a way that national space agencies don't necessarily have to. Okay, so private companies are looking to make money, yes. But these billionaires also have grand visions for the future. One of multiplanetary life, of space colonies, 
of making things real that usually live in the pages of science fiction. And again, many people are asking, why? Jeff Bezos has been asked about this and boiled it down quite simply. He said he'd amassed so much money that there was really nothing else expensive enough for him to spend it on other than space exploration and trying to alter the course of humankind. But when there's so many problems on Earth, isn't it sickening to watch the mega-wealthy squander vital resources on a vanity project? The billionaires haven't really helped themselves here. I think uh, Elon Musk used a SpaceX rocket to fire a Tesla sports car into space a few years ago uh, in a PR stunt, basically, for the company's really capable rockets. It was pretty spectacular, but it's not a great look for an industry that you know, has always struggled to justify its successes. Almost since the beginning of space exploration, people have often asked, you know, why should we be spending such large sums of money and dedicating so much time to space when, when there are problems on Earth? And we're also in the midst of a kind of reckoning about the environmental cost of travel and tourism in general. People nowadays think a lot more carefully about flying, I think, because of the carbon emissions. And depending on the type of rocket, you know, they can introduce a lot of harmful CO2 into particularly the, the upper atmosphere, which, you know, where it can stay for years. But the reason I think it's creating such a strong debate is because people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, you know, they justify the short term environmental costs with what they say is a mission to save the planet in the long term. You know, Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin in particular are very proud of their rocket technology, which they say is much more environmentally friendly than their competitors. But despite this, it's very easy to see a contest like we've had this year between these unbelievably wealthy individuals as a bit of a vanity project. The 2022 World Inequality Report contained a really interesting line about uh, carbon and uh, emissions and spaceflight. It found that an 11-minute spaceflight emits no fewer than 75 tonnes of carbon per passenger. But there are a billion people on Earth who won't produce that much carbon in their whole lives. So space exploration is incredibly expensive. It's incredibly polluting and yet is being held up as a way to help save the planet and possibly mankind. Bezos and Branson live-streamed their visits to the edge of the planet, in doing so sparking a debate about how these men got so rich in the first place, whether it was right or wrong, and what this means about our society. But they may have taken steps towards proving the concept of private spaceflight that can put up all kinds of satellites that may help us avert disasters, improve interconnections, and measure pollution they may have taken the first steps to humanity migrating to space for good. 2021 has been the year of ups and downs in the battle against COVID and major leaps and bounds in the missions to space. Whether this means we'll be going to the red planet in our lifetime is very much up in the air, even though the likes of Elon Musk and many people at NASA definitely hope it will. Thanks this week to Arthur Scott Geddes and to Daniel Bardsley. We were produced by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison. I'm James Haynes-Young. Join us again next week for part two of Beyond the Headlines, look back at the major stories of 2021. If you want to get that episode and all future episodes as soon as they're released, just head to your favorite podcasting app and hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, how about leaving us a review? It makes all the difference. <laughs>